one, wherever you may be, however you may be joining us, thank you for making this a part of your day. This show is always brought to you by you with your support at patreon.com slash adhere to apologetics. Uh, welcome, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about navigating Genesis. We're going to get through a bunch of questions about Genesis, interpretation, history, reliability, all kinds of stuff. Not completely sure where we'll end up, but we'll go for about 45 minutes. And then if you guys have some questions, we'll hit those in the live chat in the last 10, 15 minutes or so. So just to start off, Michael, in case there is someone who lives in the apologetics realm and lives under a rock and has no idea who you are or who your dog is, um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Well, that that's Thor. <laughs> Um, you have pagan gods and you're a Christian? Pagan dogs. Yeah. Well, they came with the names. His, we have his brother, too, and his name is Loki. And they came Thor and Loki. So we didn't pick the names, but we I, we're firm believers of getting rescue animals. So yeah. you know, we didn't feel like changing them. We thought it was kind of cute. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Michael Jones. I run Inspiring Philosophy, and I'm trying to build an apologetic library dealing with every issue out there. Uh, people get kind of, like, confused why I don't just specialize in one thing. Because I don't have to. <laughs> I get really annoyed when people say, well, you shouldn't really cover that topic because you're not an expert on it. And I'm like, I'm going to. I mean, there's nothing that says I can't talk about it as long as I don't tell you I'm the expert on it and actually refer you to the experts. So I, I try to really cover a lot of different areas and uh, give you in-depth studies on certain things. Like uh, I'm going to be doing a couple videos on biblical archaeology soon uh, from the Tower of Babel up to the Exodus. Yeah, man, a lot of awesome stuff. In case someone isn't subscribed to Inspiring Philosophy, I encourage you to go subscribe. Uh, but so today we're going to be talking about Genesis and some interpretation and history and things like that. So what initially, uh, you have this very long video series, and I know you have about three parts left on Genesis. So what got you interested in, like, studying Genesis? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I, probably my whole life. I mean, I, Genesis always fascinated me, even as, like, a young child because it's like the beginning. It goes back, it covers some very interesting stories and you hear very little bits and pieces. Like you hear about the Nephilim briefly and then we move on to the flood. And then you hear about this Noah guy and then not that much. You move on, eventually get to Abraham and you're like, but all these chapters on Abraham, why not so much on Noah? So I've always been really fascinated by the opening chapters of Genesis. And then I've always, from there, these stories about Abraham down to Joseph are also pretty interesting as well. So I honestly think it's my favorite book of the Bible. It always has been. Um, I've always been intrigued by things in there, like what's going on in the garden, what's going on with the flood, what's going on at Babel. Very interesting things. And so it's just always as fascinating. So I like studying it, looking into it more. Hmm. So what was kind of like your background, like um, growing up in church or things like that, and kind of the interpretation that you were taught about looking at Genesis and then Genesis 1 through 12 specifically? Well, I mean, I, I, the church I grew up in was very much young earth creationist uh, church. I remember being in seventh grade and there was a, a, someone in my science teacher who was teaching about like the age of the universe. And I was like, well, that's not what Genesis was saying. And the same time, I had a cousin who was very much pulling me away from that. So I did go through a period where I sort of doubted a lot of that and thought it was crazy and stupid. Um, I remember being in church one time and telling someone I didn't believe in it all, a lot of it. So that the net, I told him in confidence too because I didn't want to be bombarded with people there. Uh, but the next week, he came back and he gave me a book called Evolution: The Live by Ken Ham, and I was like, "Oh, thanks." <laughs> I tried to read it and it was just horrible. 
uh, it's like, it was not a good book. Uh, so I've all, uh, so I've always been sort of like interested in that sort of area and whatnot. And so my church, I thought they said things about it and it just was very much like, well, that just seems so weird and counterproductive. And I think the more I read on it for like professional scholars or even people like C.S. Lewis talking about some aspects of it, uh, the more I realized, well, maybe there's more here than meets the eye because what you get from young earth creationists and radical atheists is just a very simple reading. And I don't think that really captures what's going on in the chapters. There's a lot more in depth, uh, interesting ideas going on in there that people are missing out and you're not getting in the young earth creationist camp. Mm. Yeah, man. I mean, something a little bit different, but I thought of as you're talking about is kind of the psychological aspect. Like I'm sure you're familiar with Jordan Peterson's lectures where he goes through Genesis and has these like two hour long lectures on just these stories in Genesis. And he obviously isn't a Christian, but agrees with you on the power of what's going on in Genesis one through 12. So you talked about, you grew up in kind of a younger church. That was kind of your background. And obviously your views are very different than that now. So what was kind of like the transition like from how did you get to where you are today regarding some of your views on Genesis? And it might be helpful just to kind of like outline, like, what do you believe about Genesis? Cause you know, people are like, are you a young earther or an old earther or a theistic evolutionist? Or like, so maybe just start off yeah. with where, where you are and then kind of like how you got there. Yeah. Well, when I was going through my doubting phase, I sort of like just banned the whole study of Genesis because it just sounded ridiculous at the time. Uh, when I became a Christian later, like solid Christian, pretty much, uh, someone introduced me to Kent Hovind and that sort of, for, you know, I think I was taken in by his confidence. Like, it seemed like he was just knew what he was talking about. So I became a defender of his position until I got creamed in debates online and realized that he didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, so from there, I, I'm, I sort of went into like Hugh Ross position. And then I slowly, over time, went bounced around a little bit, but eventually ended in John Walton's camp. So what I, I kind of, basically what I believe now is I'm a theistic evolutionist. I believe in the theory of evolution, and I also believe in an historical Adam and Eve. I just interpret them within a, a different framework uh, based on things Genesis says. So I don't believe they were the first humans. I would say Genesis is referring to them as the first priests and priestess of creation. Uh, they're not taught as if they, you know, there were not any humans before them. I think that's implied in the text quite, uh, quite, maybe it might be a little bit, I would say it might be pretty explicit even if you look at the comparisons between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So my basic position is that Genesis, the first couple chapters of Genesis is about God turning the cosmos into his temple. Uh, it's not the first time creation appears. It's sort of God transforming it into like a temple type structure. And then he elects priests to operate within this temple, namely Genesis 2 is what it's about. And then Genesis 3 is the fall and how they're exiled from this temple back into the chaotic wilderness beyond that. That's a real brief nutshell of things I cover in my Genesis series. Mm. Uh, Nick Quinn says, you do you all doing any cues? Yeah, we'll do some Q&A, Nick. Thank you for saying you all, not y'all. I have an objection to y'all for some reason. Uh, but with the book of Genesis, uh, where does it come from? Like we have this idea. I know people who aren't Christians will say it was written in the fourth or fifth century BC or BCE. And so when you look at the authorship and kind of like where this book comes from, where do you, where, where do you see the origins of Genesis? 
Okay, well, I would agree with a big asterisk that it was written in during the Babylonian exile. Um, it definitely was. I mean, it was. That's when the Jews started using the Chaldean alphabet. So there had to be some sort of uh, process there. My basic view is that Genesis, uh, the first early recognizable form of Genesis, would have come about during uh, the monarchy period, maybe Solomon David time, maybe a little bit after. Uh, some that sometime around then it's updated a little bit later it's updated some more especially during the babylonian exile and that's when we get the form of genesis that we have now uh, so the most early recognizable form would have happened during uh early iron age i would say uh they didn't write it in a vacuum i would say they relied on other earlier sources like i think they took the table of nations which already existed and put it in genesis at that point they would have used an earlier flood account uh, there would have been an early Adamic account that they would have incorporated into there. I'm not taking a documentary hypothesis, but something like that. You get like an early form around the time of Solomon, perhaps, maybe a little bit later, and then it gets updated around the time of the exile. Now, I don't think that's much of an issue for me. Like Genesis 11 says that Abraham left from Ur of the Chaldeans. All right, Chaldeans probably weren't reigning in that region until much later. A later author during the exile probably would have put that reference in for later uh, biblical usage. That's not a big deal to me. If you want a comparison, in Egypt, there's a work called The Tale of Sinuha. And we have found an early version from the Middle Kingdom and a later version from the 13th century. In the 13th century version, uh, Kedem is updated to have a uh, the, to Kadesh. So the earlier name of the city is now changed to Kadesh. Uh, they use, they update language. Like, they don't use the old Egyptian word for sea. They update it with a Semitic loan word, yam. So it was common that text would be updated over time. Uh, we see this in Egypt, and I think that's what happened with Genesis. Basically, during the time of the monarchy, they started to put their history together. You get an early form of Genesis. It's then updated for later audiences, especially during the exile. And then you get basically a standard form of what we have today. And of course, you know, you have forms of Genesis updated later for into the Septuagint. Uh, there's the Samaritan Pentateuch, that kind of thing. So that's my basic view of Genesis. It's a, you know, it's, it's a process of getting it out. It wasn't always just written one, at one time, stamped with a seal of approval and sent out kind of thing. It was a text that was updated over time. But it was just trying to get the history of Israel out there so that the people would be able to have it and use it if they needed it. So how does this view of Genesis impact kind of like ideas such as like the inspiration or the inerrancy of scripture because I know you bring up uh, in I believe you said Genesis 13 with Abraham with this location that probably wouldn't have occurred I believe what you said is during the time that Abraham would have lived so how do you see Genesis in light of like traditional Christian ideas such as the inspiration or inerrancy of scriptures well I mean I don't see why God couldn't be in that process I did a video back in April called like who wrote the Bible cultural context of the biblical world. And I explained like, you know, these texts could be written up over time. Uh, that was not so much a problem because God could be in the process as well. Uh, why couldn't God uh, allow that kind of thing? So basically um, Michael Heiser uses something called the Holy stapler analogy. And take like a prophet, like Isaiah or, Ze or Zechariah, Ezekiel. You have disciples that follow him, may write down notes of things he said. All of a sudden he dies. 
okay, well, now you got all this work of stuff you've done. Do you just put it all together and take a holy stapler and go, there you go. There's, no, you get you get a, uh, a good scribe who can go through his work, make it cohesive, make it work together, put things left and right. An analogy you can see with this with the book of Jeremiah. Uh, in the Septuagint version of Jeremiah, it's one-seventh shorter than what you get in the Masoretic version. So what the argument is, is that when Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah was taking, taken into exile with the uh, people in Babylon, a trident would have gone with it, and he would have updated it into the Chaldean alphabet. He would have added some additional commentary, reorganized some things to help explain what Jeremiah was trying to get at. I don't see why God could not have helped have been in that process of uh, getting scripture out so that people could better understand it. Okay, so do you hold to like an idea of the inerrancy of scripture? Is that a view you have? I don't even know what that means anymore. I remember mm -hmm. I was at um, ETS last year and I attended a lecture by Mike Lacona and he said the same thing. He's like, depending on who you talk to, what does inerrancy mean? I, I don't even think we should use the term anymore. Uh, I don't know what it means. I mean, everyone pretty much agrees there are scribal errors, like in Ezra, or if you compare a list between Chronicles or Kings, there's going to be a little bit of discrepancies there. I don't see that as much of an issue. I'm more interested in talking about reliability than inerrancy, because I don't even know what inerrancy means anymore. It's different depending on who you talk to. Awesome. It's a perfect transition because uh, the next question was about the reliability of Genesis. Like, so why do you think that Genesis is reliable? What are some of the a few reasons that you think that we can believe and trust in this book? Yeah, so this is something I'm working on slowly. I've been talking about it in random uh, presentations I've given, and I'm trying to build up arguments for it. Uh, so the how we would look at it is through internal and external evidence. In terms of external evidence, Genesis gets a lot of things right about the past that uh, if somebody writing, you know, during the Babylon exile would probably not have gotten right. So take the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is one example of an external evidence. Say during the days of Abraham, there was some this cataclysmic event where major cities were destroyed by fire raining down. Well, for years, people thought this was a mythic invention because we couldn't find the cities of the plain. Well, Stephen Collins, who's an archaeologist, found this site called Tel El Hammam. It's in the Jordan Valley Rift. It's so it's on the plain there. It's a massive site. It's huge. Uh, it's probably the site of Sodom. And about during the Middle Bronze Age too, which Kenneth Kitchen says is the time period of Abraham, uh, the city was massively destroyed. Uh, it, it was so hot uh, that basically they have a uh, to quote uh, Collins. He says surface metals and uh, surface Surfaces melted into glass with some bubbling up like frothy magma, indicating that they were burned in a flash heat event exceeding degrees of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So there was this massive site during the time period of Abraham, Middle Bronze Age II, that was just utterly destroyed by excessive amounts of heat and fire. And archaeologists working there estimate there may have been an asteroid that exploded over the area, causing fire to rain down. Okay, if you're a Jew living in the Babylonian exile period, and you're inventing a myth. It's very unlikely you're going to get the correct time frame. You're going to get the correct destruction of a massive city site. Uh, it's probably more likely there's or those were accurate oral traditions handed down to the Jews. You can see this with other things. I would argue the land of Eden is an accurate oral tradition that's been handed down to them. 
the flood account of Mesopotamia being flooded and destroyed is a accurate oral tradition. Table of Nations, I would argue, has some uh, Bronze Age evidence in there. And there's some other indications as well. Internal evidence of this thing can date to an early time period. I'm currently collecting evidence for the time period of Abraham. So you get all these correlations lined up. It's very unlikely that someone inventing myth is going to get a lot of these correlations. Now, it's hard for me to just list them all out here without spending 20 minutes because Genesis is a book that I would say covers millennia. It, it, mm -hmm. What you would say is makes Genesis 2 reliable is not the same thing you would say makes Genesis 10 reliable uh, because these are different time periods. It's unlike the book of Matthew or even the book of Kings because Kings covers less time than Genesis. So you'd have to go through each chapter and look for interesting pieces of internal evidence, things that align with the external evidence, and just sort of point them out slowly. So that's a project I'm slowly starting to undertake. But Sodom and Gomorrah, I think, is just one example of that. Hmm. So one question that I have as we kind of go through this is what if someone would throw on you, you talked about, is it, I'm trying to remember the exact thing, the story of Abraham, is it Genesis 13, this, where you said that there's an issue with the timing of the place, is that Genesis 13 you said? Genesis 11, yes, in the end, where Abraham left her of the Chaldeans with his father, Terah. Mm -hmm. So you have that, and you see that as, what, ex what exactly did you say? And just repeat it uh, for what's going on here. It says Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans. And so a lot of people think of the Chaldeans is an updated aspect of Genesis. Someone added that in later, because if you're writing to like a later audience, and they want to know where Ur was. Oh, it's where the Chaldeans were reigning. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, the Chaldeans weren't really reigning there till the Iron Age. When Abraham left Ur, there weren't any Chaldeans there. Uh, another aspect is Genesis 14, 14, where Abraham goes into the land of Dan. Okay, Dan was the grandson of Abraham. No one called it Dan during the days of Abraham. This is a later updated author saying, yeah, they went to the land of Dan. It's like today, if I told you that uh, the Peloponnesian War was fought in Greece. Okay, no one called it Greece back then. That's what the Romans labeled the area. They called themselves Hellens. The area was Hellenus. Okay, just because we are calling it by a later modern name, that doesn't mean that you know we're making an anach anachronistic error. It's just an updated place name for a later audience. Okay, yeah, I think I'm totally tracking with you, uh, with what you're saying then. So let's just go on. Um, so... Let's talk about the idea of the historical Adam and Eve. I know that you said you believe in a historical Adam and Eve. So could you talk a little bit about like what makes you convinced that, because uh, I know this is something that's starting to be questioned a little bit, but what makes you convinced that Adam and Eve were real historical figures? Well, Genesis clearly talks about them as real historical people. Uh, for one, they're listed in genealogies. Uh, Paul refers to them as an historical person. And so I compare it to someone like Gilgamesh. A lot of scholars like uh, Trigvain Medinger would say Gilgamesh was a real historical person. They're just not going to believe all the things he did in the Epic of Gilgamesh. because, And the reason being is because Gilgamesh shows up in genealogies. So he may have been a real king of Uruk at one point. Just he probably didn't go on these grand adventures with Enkidu and go to the end of the world and all these types of things. It's probably just a later myth about him. So from there, I mean, people, I would say... Adam at least is an historical person, regardless of the stuff going on. Genesis is accurate or not. So that's one reason I would take him as historically accurate. Um, in terms of arguing beyond that, it's hard to do because there's not a lot of evidence. I mean, we don't have inscriptions of someone named Adam living in the Garden of Eden early on. I can't really go beyond that. Um, I would have to look for 
arguments that Genesis is a reliable count, and they make a probabilistic argument that if they got, you know, A through Z accurate, it's likely that they're accurately recording an early priest of creation in Eden. So that would just be the only way I could do, really go about doing it. Uh, I just want to say for everyone who's joining us, we will be doing a little bit of Q&A in about 20 minutes. If you guys have questions, I saw a couple, you can put them in the live chat. Uh, but let's move on here. Obviously, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, but let's talk about the theory of evolution for a little bit. Um, you talked about how you kind of wrestled through this theory, and I know you now accept it. So if you're going to explain to someone, let's say a young earther who isn't like a hardened, like a Ken Ham or Ken Hoven, who you're not going to, no matter what you say, you aren't going to convince them, but someone who's open to the idea of theistic evolution, but just doesn't see how you could explain it biblically. How would you explain the idea that um, theistic evolution, we're talking macroevolution here, uh, fits within the narrative of the Bible and what we see in Genesis? Well, I wouldn't say it fits in the narrative. I would say they're talking about different things. Mm -hmm. Evolution is how humans came about. Uh, Genesis is just talking about something different. It's talking about when God elected creation to be his, his uh, temple and then took priests and placed them in the garden. Um, I don't have to state that... You know, there the Bible teaches evolution. I don't think it does. I think they're just talking about different realms of inquiry. It's like asking me if the Bible is compatible with quantum mechanics. Well, sure. It's just they're not talking about the same thing. Okay. So, how would you respond to someone that talks about like we have the de novo creation of Adam and Eve, and they see no, they don't understand how you can have God creating Adam and Eve, but also see like a evolutionary process. I know you have a lot of videos that go into this, but in a simple, in a simple explanation, how would you explain this? Well, Dr. Joshua Swamada just wrote a book called The Genealogical Adam, uh, where he notes that God could have created Adam, de Nova, Adam and Eve in the garden, and then they just in intermingled with people outside of the garden. And so eventually they just became the ancestor of us all by genealogical relationships. And so I did an interview with Cameron on Capturing Christianity a couple, about a couple months ago, and we detailed you know, basically how that works. Um, a good argument to use is to compare Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, if you know Genesis 1, there is no specific creation of humanity. It says, it talks about let us make man in our own image, but the language seems to be more about electing humanity to be the image bearers of God. It's saying, you know, I, I call you to be my image on earth kind of thing. Uh, that's what Michael Heiser talks about. Uh, J. Richard Milton wrote a book called The Liberating Image, and he talks about it as well. So that's uh, so think about it from there. It's humanity sort of elected. Okay, so then you have Genesis 2. Now, skeptics will say this is a separate creation account. I don't agree. I think it's sort of honing in on a specific area in, over the whole earth. It's honing in on the land of Eden and sort of electing a sort of sacred space where God can meet with humanity there. Now, what's really interesting is that Genesis 2, specifically verse 4, says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is a Toledoth. It appears about 11 times throughout Genesis, and it always introduces what comes after the person. So if you see these are the generations of Adam. It introduces the generations that come after Adam. These are the generations of Terah. It tells you what takes place after Terah. It's a reoccurring theme. Now, the, the way, now, if it's used in Genesis 2, it seems to be indicating a chapter marker like it does at later times. This is what comes after the heavens and the earth. It's saying these are the generations of the heavens, heavens and the earth. 
basically Genesis one details God electing the cosmos chapter two. Now we're going to hone in on a specific area. That means when it refers to humans in Genesis one, it's not talking about Adam, Adam and Eve. They don't come until Genesis two. So what you can get is God elects all humanity, wherever they are at that time point to be his image. Then in Genesis two, he owns on a specific area and elects or maybe creates two people they know of to be his specific image bearers in that garden area. So I would say right then and there, it's perfectly compatible with the theory of evolution. If you understand Genesis one is about man being elected to be God's image bearers. Uh, it implies humans were already there and existing and God just sort of elected them to be that. Then in Genesis two, chapter two of the sequel, uh, God uh, takes two individuals and makes them the priests of creation. So you don't have, so you actually have people before Adam or there. Adam is just sort of taken out of that population that was already elected to be his image. Hmm. Uh, another question that will go on as we keep on going through here is the idea of original sin, the doctrine of relates to atonement a little bit. Um, so I think this is obviously a little bit unrelated to what we've been talking to, but an important idea we see in Genesis is the idea of original sin. I, I know a lot of objections today are things like, well, why do I have to pay the punishment um, that Adam deserved, or things like that that are interesting. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about like the idea of original sin and kind of your view of what's going on, and then how does that apply to us today? So original sin, I would say, is us being passed on a fallen nature. One thing we need to remember about sin is the Bible is very clear that this is explicit in Romans 5.13. Sin is not counted where there is no law. So you cannot sin if there's no law. Example, it wasn't a sin for Noah to eat pork because that was not given in the Mosaic law yet. So God did not give that law, so therefore it was not a sin prior to that to eat pork. So if humans were not given a covenant with a law, yet there was no sin yet because there was nothing to break. So we need to remember that with regards to sin, is that before Adam and Eve were elected and given the covenant and told not to do certain things, there really was no sin according to what the Bible means by sin, by breaking God's law. So with that in mind, what is original sin? Well, it's our first priests and priests of creation. Uh, we're given a covenant. They broke it. Uh, we were there, we were grafted into them, like we're now grafted into Christ, as being fallen. And they sort of passed on that same fallen nature that uh, of not uh, being able to keep God's law properly. So in the Greek Orthodox Church, that's all original sin is. It's this idea that God has sort of passed on a fallen nature to us. And not so much that we're born guilty, like you see with maybe St. Augustus, for example. You're born already condemned to hell. No, you, your own sin is what condemns you and just it's not but you know you just get that same nature passed on that makes you sin awesome man uh so let's talk a little bit about the idea of the flood obviously we're flying through genesis here and if you guys have been joining us i encourage you to check out uh inspiring philosophy's whole genesis series it's going to cover a lot more in detail some of the like basic things we've been discussing in this interview but let's talk about the idea of the flood a little bit I know that uh, in the circles, at least I grew up in, it wasn't a super fundamental young earth ho household in church, but it was leaning that way. Uh, the idea of a partial flood was something that I was completely unaware of for a really long time. So can you talk a little bit about like building the case that the flood was a partially only partially covered the earth? Um, what's going on there? Stuff like that. 
Yeah, so I think this is pretty evident in places like Genesis 8. One thing you need to remember about Genesis, though, is that it uses hyperbolic language. It talks about the flood as, you know, this sort of all-encompassing thing. Like, it, you know, it, it destroys all the land. That happens elsewhere in Genesis. Like, for example, it talks about during the days of Joseph, all came to buy bread from Joseph. Okay, we don't actually think people were coming from, you know, the Mesoamerican region to buy bread from Joseph. It's just referring to various areas that people were coming to buy bread. This is also evident considering that Jacob, his own father, didn't go to buy bread. I mean, he stayed behind. So we don't have to take the flood account is literally, it, it's, it's hyperbolic in how it talks about the extent of the flood. And there are indications of this in Genesis 8. So, for example, uh, it talks about, uh, it says the, it, it says the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat and the mountains were seen, tops of mountains were seen. Okay, so the flood has receded to a point where they can see actual mountains now. Well, what happens next? Well, Noah released some birds, and they fly around and have to return. What does it say? Well, Genesis 8 says they returned to the ark because the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Well, wait a minute. I thought verse 5 said the tops of mountains were seen. Why is it saying the water is still on the face of the whole earth after that? It isn't. There's still There's mountains that you can see. And I bring this up to young earth creationists, and they don't really have good replies to that. They just sort of take that later verse, hyperbolic, but the, or the previous verse is hyperbolic. Uh, some try to say that, well, the tops of the mountains were seen under the waters. Like, he could see down them under there. and you know, Okay, that creates other problems, because uh, if, if he was on the, the tippy top of Mount Ararat, okay, doves cannot fly at such a high altitude. All of trees cannot grow at such a high altitude. Uh, they have to grow at much lower elevations. So it's very unlikely they would have actually been that high up. And how are they going to get down from Mount Ararat too? You know, people can only get up there today with special equipment climbing these high mountains. I mean, you just can't walk up there on a hike. It takes some pretty good effort to get all the way to the top. So I think it's far more likely that this was a local event. I mean, Noah, the ark came to rest somewhere in the north around the mountains of Aratu. I think it's more likely Aratu than Ararat. Uh, they landed in that general region. He could see the mountains. He wasn't really sure how far they were. So he released birds to see if they could return to him or not. If they're too far away, the dove is going to have to return to him. Uh, and so he used that to measure the receding waters of the flood. So I think it's kind of indicated in Genesis 8. This is not a global event. He just sort of landed at some low-lying plain area, and he could just see the mountains of Aratu in the distance. Hmm. A lot of good stuff you bring up here. One kind of follow-up question is, I know that in all the children's books and children's Bibles and all that thing, you'll see the idea that two of every animal, like you have the giraffes lined up next to the polar bears and all that stuff. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing you don't believe that's actually true. So could you talk just a, t a little bit about that specific thing? Um, what's going on with the two of every animals thing in the f flood story? Yeah, so I talk about this in my, my video, Genesis 6B, Ark and Animals, part of the Genesis series. And this was a difficult thing for me for a while because it's like, well, I mean, if there's a local flood, why are you bringing animals onto the ark? They could just, you know, flee the surrounding area. Uh, so I think some of it has to do with the covenant stipulations of what's going on there. And again, I may not articulate this properly, but see my video Genesis 6B where I sort of lay it out better. Uh, God indicates to, to Noah that he's making a new covenant, not with just humanity, but with creation in general. Uh, it's going to be very similar to what happened in the garden with uh, Genesis 2, where there were animals there. 
uh, it's part of the, the covenantal stipulations. So if God is sort of making a new covenant with all of creation, animals would need to be part of the stipulations as well. I also think it's sort of a way to sort of warn the people that there's a coming flood, coming judgment. God is essentially saying, I'd rather save the chaotic creative uh, wilderness over you because you are more detestable than them now. So God sort of goes, uh, bring uses Noah to sort of the building of the ark, bringing the animals on the ark as sort of like a way to preach judgment upon the and condemnation upon the corrupt generation. And this is essentially what the book of Hebrews says is that, you know, Noah was a herald of righteousness. He was, uh, I think it's first Peter or maybe it's second Peter. It says Noah was preaching condemnation on the corrupt generation or whatnot. So God is sort of using the animals to sort of enact out the new covenantal stipulations and sort of as like a polemic to sort of art, preach condemnation upon that corrupt generation. And if you actually read how the animals are used in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, that seems to be the purpose. It's not so much that, you know, this is like we got to save them because there's not going to be any land for them to escape to. It's I'm creating a new covenant and I need the animals to be a part of this and I want them to be so future generations understand that when I made a creation, when I made a covenant with creation, it meant animals as well, not just humanity. So would you say there were literally like two of every animals on the ark? No, there weren't kangaroos. It, it would just be the local wild animals, the wolves, uh, the mountain goats, the deer, perhaps. Uh, Noah is just getting what he has available to sort of bring on the, the ark kind of thing. Um, and so, I mean, you could also make the argument that if the, the land was so corrupt as it was, uh, you know, there may not have been a lot of life left at that point. And so it might, the safer response might actually be to just get on the ark, wait out the storm instead of trying to flee into the area. I mean, imagine trying to cross Yemen right now with a, you know, a caravan of animals. It may not be the safest thing to do considering how you know, the, the constant war and the starvation, people may just be like, well, there's a pretty easy meal. Let's just go get it. Yeah, man. Uh, let's go on here. A few more general questions we get as we kind of go through Genesis a little bit. Let's talk about the idea of the gene genealogies a little bit. I know you debated the Bible scholar G-Man on this topic <laughs> a yes, little bit ago. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about like what you think is going on in the genealogies? I know some people may get stuck up like on the idea that these are literal genealogies, which kind of hurts old earth creationism. So could you talk a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, they're probably symbolic numbers to give a to give two things: to give their ancestors honor, and to use mathematical formulas to teach uh, different meanings. So I think I detail that in my video on Genesis five. But here's a really simple argument that I use: if you go to Genesis seventeen, God comes to Abraham, he comes to Abraham and says, "You're going to have a child," and the Bible says, "And Abraham laughed and fell on his face and said, Shall a man who's a hundred have a child?'" Okay. If the ages are literal, Abraham should have went, yeah, that's normal. My father, I was 130, he was 130 when I was born. But Abraham thinks it's impossible or very unlikely that people over the age of 100 have children. Well, that would contradict his own genealogies where people are having children past the age of 100, specifically his own father. Uh, so he thinks that that's just, he, his own understanding is people past the age of 100 don't have children. That implies it's far more likely the ages are symbolic uh, references. They're meant to give their ancestors honor. They're not meant to be taken literal. And you can see mathematical formulas within the ages that are, show it's very, very unlikely that these are literal ages. And so I detail a lot of them in my video on Genesis 5. 
Yeah, man. Uh, one or two more questions here uh, before we do a little bit of Q&A. Uh, one of the biggest mysteries in Genesis is the Nephilim. I know you have a big video on it, so I encourage people to check it out if you want to get a little bit more info than you'll get uh, when I ask uh, Michael here. But can you talk a little bit just about who the Nephilim are? Yeah, I, I get criticized a lot because I don't take Michael Heiser's view. and I, my, A lot of my, my supporters go kind of crazy over that. Uh, but I'm just, I'm thoroughly not convinced that the Nephilim are about angels that have had sex with women. And my biggest argument is that it's the internal evidence of Genesis 6, 1 to 4. If I just go to it really quickly and just read it, I mean, you just, you just read it plainly. And I, I've said this to people who are proponents of Heiser's view. If all, if there was nothing in the Bible except for Genesis 6, 1 to 4, it's all we had. Would you read this and think it was had anything to do with angels or divine beings having sex with women? And they have to admit no, because if you just read the internal evidence, it doesn't indicate that. It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. Okay, that implies the people, that the two groups, sons of God and the daughters of men, were two groups of humans. Our verse 4 says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the son of when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Again, they seem to just be men, the Nephilim and the uh, sons of God. Now, the biggest argument is that well, sons of God in the Bible typically means a divine being. Fair enough, I agree. But the reason you think that is the case in Psalm eighty-two, and other places, is because the internal evidence suggests that. It's not because of external evidence from other passages you impose on the text. The internal evidence suggests that. And likewise, the internal evidence of Genesis 6 suggests that the sons of God are just humans. So I would say this is an earlier Akkadian account that was connected with the flood account that the Hebrews just inherited, and they kept the same language. So that's why you see sons of God. It's just to the, to the original authors, it meant kings. My basic understanding it is the same view you get from Alan Miller or Meredith Klein. And they say this is just a continuation of Genesis 4. Genesis 4 leaves off with the sin of Laban, who was becoming polygamous. Now it's extended to all of the rulers of mankind. Uh, the rulers, the sons of God, these elected rulers, they're called these sort of children of the God, uh, children of God. Same thing you get kind of with like later the king of David, he's called God's son. These are, you know, sons of God. Um, they are these elected rulers, and now they're becoming polygamists. They're taking any of the any hum, any wives as they chose, as many as they want, similar to what Laban did. And because of them, the earth is now corrupt. Now, I'm not saying the flood just came from polygamy. This is a big misunderstanding in my video on Genesis 6. I'm not saying polygamy was the reason for the flood. I'm saying it was one factor. You had polygamy spread out. It was harmful for women. You had uh, these Nephilim. They were filling the earth with corruption. You had, and that's what Genesis 6, 5 says. So you had numerous things. Polygamy was just one of the things that also brought about the flood. It was just one of the sins that brought about the flood. That's my view in a nutshell. I'm just, again, if you want to convince me of the Heiser view, you just got to show me internally that Genesis 6 means that. And it, you, unfortunately, you can't because the evidence really seems to indicate these are just humans. For sure, dude. Uh, we'll go through one more question here, and then if you guys are listening live. Ooh, have one, one more thing I will mention. I am going to do a video on the book of Enoch probably in November, and I'm going to argue it's a late – because Enoch is connected to this as well. People say, well, Enoch says they're Nephilim. 
So I'm going to do a video on Enoch probably in November. That's when I'm, I have it scheduled for. I have the script. Uh, my brother-in-law, David Wilbur, helped me write it. And we're going to argue that the, Nephil that the, um, the Book of Enoch is an unreliable account from basically after the Maccabean Revolt or that doesn't really reflect actual history of Genesis 6. Awesome, dude. Uh, we'll go through one more question. We'll do a little bit of Q&A for you guys listening live. Uh, so I know there's the famous line that GMD loves to troll you on, which is you take that man's word over God's word, um, stuff you see a lot about. And I think people who take an older earth position sometimes get, are told this. So when someone tells you that you're just taking the word of man over the word of God and trying to fit things that don't that aren't biblical into the Bible – how do you respond? Obviously, it's a very general question, but in a general sense, how would you respond? Yeah, I say that's why I'm going to ignore everything they say because they're just a man and I shouldn't believe anything they say. There we go. Perfect. Yeah, I, I'm not taking man's word over God. I'm rejecting your erroneous interpretation of God's word. And it's such an arrogant thing to say to equate your interpretation of scripture with God's word. You're basically pointing, putting yourself, these young earth creationists or fundamentalists in general, they're basically putting themselves basically on the same level as a prophet. They know how to correctly interpret scripture. And if you reject their interpretation, you're rejecting God's word. What an arrogant thing to say, these people, these people like Ken Ham and others like them. It's utterly arrogant. It really shows uh, where their heart truly is. And so I just reject what they say because they're just a man. Uh, there's nothing more to say on that. Fair enough. Uh, we'll go to a little bit of Q&A. Uh, if you guys have we have a bunch of questions in the live chat, so we'll get some stuff for the next 10, 12 minutes. Uh, Nick Quint says, Mike, have you looked at how Philo of Alexandria interprets the days of Genesis 1? He interprets the text in a philosophical manner that eschews the literalness of the days. It's kind of neat. Yeah, I, I do remember reading that a while ago when I was um, looking into Philo some more. I think some of the stuff he says is interesting. I also like what he says about the word of God and, and the, the wind of God, the spirit of God in that passage. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. I'm not sure I entirely agree. I do think the days in Genesis 1 are literal seven days. Uh, but I also understand it's not necessarily that case. I mean, Genesis 2, it says in the day that God made the heavens and the earth. It, it uses that more in a metaphorical sense. So you could do that as well. But I don't think it's necessary. I think it's a seven-day temple inauguration. So you're going to get exactly seven 24-hour literal days. Uh, next question is from Mr. Brass. He says... <laughs> uh, he says, how do you square the Bible's teaching of God making the good world with millions of years of suffering and death? Yeah, I would refer people to my debate when I, I had with Cosmic Skeptic on that, where I detail some of that. Uh, people are assuming suffering is always inherently bad, and I'm not convinced that it is. I should probably do a specific video on suffering. But uh, so how do you square the Bible's teaching of God making a, a good world with millions of years of suffering? So. Let's think about that, for example. If suffering is so inherently bad, then we ought to end it wherever it actually is in nature. Let's say we could get rid of the – I brought this up to Cosmic Skeptic. But let's say we could get rid of the rainforest without uh, actually harming the earth. Let's say we found out getting rid of the rainforest would actually be better for us as humans. It would be better for you know the environment as a whole. Well, in the rainforest, there's countless levels of animal suffering happening right now. Should we get rid of the rainforest? No, I think there's some intrinsic goodness to the rainforest despite the suffering there. So I think there's intrinsic goodness in, in, in life itself that doesn't uh, – that the actual suffering that comes with it doesn't actually overtake. 
So I don't think the fact that it's suffering existed along with light is a good enough reason to say that the, the creation itself is not good or that God cannot use that for good. There's not, I'd say there's more instrumental goodness that could come out of that and more intrinsic goodness in life itself that overcomes any intrinsic badness with regards to suffering itself. Now, I probably should do my own video on suffering. I can talk about animal suffering, kind of elaborate on some stuff I went in that, on in that debate. Uh, but it probably won't be till maybe May of next year because I need to I, I need to get the exodus done by April. And to get there, I got to get all my other videos on archaeology done first. Got a lot on your plate, man. Uh, Anders Ekren says, IP, do you think the creation flood account originated from Uruk? Uruk. Uruk. Uh, no, I maybe. <laughs> it may have been, uh, uh, Abraham may have you know, had known of an Ur, a version from Ur. Uh, there were a lot of different flood accounts in the ancient Near East. I mean, the Gilgamesh version is not the same as the Atrahasis. Uh, there are some slight differences between Atrahasis and Eridugenesis, although those two are pretty similar. Um, I would say there were probably numerous flood accounts in the ancient Near East. Uh, which one is the most reliable? That's another. That's a question for another time. Uh, but uh, I would say um, that it probably didn't come from Uruk. It may have been a, an account maybe that originated in Eridu, maybe Ur. An interesting about, thing about Uruk, let's talk about that for a, a second, because a, a related thing is uh, the the Babylon or the the Sumerians and the Babylonians. So the first city was a city named Eridu, uh, or Uruk is also another pretty old city. Interestingly enough, if you go to Genesis four, it says that Cain went out and built a city named it after his son Enoch. Well, if in the book in this book here in this book here, they note that the way the Sumerians could pronounce Uruk would be Anak, which sounds a little bit like Enoch. So maybe when they're talking about, it, you know, the first, one of the first cities, they could actually be referring to Uruk existing before the flood. Another interpretation of Genesis 4 is that based on the Hebrew, it's kind of vague. It could not actually be saying Cain built the first city named it after his son. It could be saying that Enoch built the first city and named it after his son. And his son was named, his, his son's name was Irad. Well, the Sumerians thought the first city was Eridu. And so Arad could correlate with the city of Eridu. So they could just be agreeing with the Sumerians that the first city was Eridu. Awesome. Uh, next question comes from Benjamin Bethel. He says, if we are not connected to Adam and Eve, but yet we are still condemned for their actions, how come all the angels aren't condemned because of Lucifer's sin? Well, that's, that's a fair question. I mean, I don't think the angels are necessarily going to be treated the same way as humans are because they are on a different plane of existence and they're going to have different knowledge. Uh, I would also say that, uh, you know, so let me let me read this question myself just to make sure I don't I don't I want to try to steal man as best I can. If we're not if we're not connected to Adam and Eve, but yet we are still condemned for their actions. How come all the angels aren't? Con well, I don't think we're condemned because of Adam and Eve's actions. So I don't maybe I misspoke earlier. Uh, I would say that we're condemned because of our own sin. Adam and Eve were just exiled from the garden. They lost a specific status where they could represent creation in a better way. And they were exiled back into the wilderness. Uh, so they couldn't have the same access to God the, the way that we may have through Christ now. So I would say we're condemned by our own actions. But I would also say that we're saved through the actions of Christ. So we're grafted in through Christ. We're not condemned by our own sin. I think that's actually a good thing. We're not condemned for Adam and Eve's actions, you know. I would say it's actually a good thing, this whole priestly thing they sort of set up where Adam and Eve can represent us. 
and we sort of lost that, but now Christ can represent us in a better way. I may not be understanding their question properly, and I apologize if I'm not, but I don't know, maybe I misspoke earlier. Mm. Uh, Mr. Brass says, uh, you talked about this in Messenger, but for the audience, you seem to deny that kids were killed in the flood. Um, how would you square that with corporate responsibility? So he's talking about my video on Genesis 7, and you know I knew this would video would upset a lot of atheists. The, so one thing I'm saying with that is I'm not denying corporate corp, uh, um, corporate responsibility. I simply noted it's a possibility no kids died in the flood. And my reason for this is quite simple. Atheists say two things. They'll say it was wrong for an omnipotent God to murder so many people in this flood and an omnipotent God who should have found a better way to do something. Okay, do you kind of see like an inherent contradiction in there? Maybe he did if it was a local flood. Maybe he did something similar to what we did with Simon Gomorrah, where he sent angels in to get the, all the innocent people or the, the best that the land had to offer out before the destruction could happen. If you're going to say an omnipotent God should have come out with a better way, and you literally can come up with a better way just by looking at the Sodom and Gomorrah account and applying it to the flood, you can't criticize the flood for being evil because God could have actually found a better way. So I'm only noting that as a possibility that maybe there were no kids that died in the flood because God could have gotten them out. And if atheists are going to criticize an omnipotent God, they should at least give the benefit of the doubt that that's what actually happened or that could have happened. So that's all I'm sort of noting with that. Uh, in terms of corporate responsibility, I would understand it, especially in terms of the uh, Egyptian plagues, like the 10th plague. Um, and I will talk about that more in a later video. Uh, but first, I need to do a video on suffering specifically and talk about uh, the nature of it, why I don't think it's wrong for God to allow suffering. Um, I also need to remind people that in the Bible, uh, God is given responsibility for things he does not directly cause. So sometimes it's said that God caused something he didn't really cause it. He just allowed it to happen. So you could argue God just allowed the flood to happen. God just allowed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Case in point, uh, the book of 1 Samuel says that Saul committed suicide. Now, if you go to 1 Chronicles, it says God brought judgment upon him. Well, I thought he committed suicide. Well, no, God just allowed him to commit suicide. By, therefore, judgment fell upon him. So sometimes when in the Bible, God simply allows things to happen. And... He's given credit because you know, he just allowed it to happen. It's just a cultural theme or cultural way to say something. So you could argue that maybe God necessarily didn't cause the flood. He just allowed it to happen and didn't give the people time to get out or, or he warned them enough time to get out, but they didn't listen to Noah who was preaching. And so the flood came in and destroyed them all. Uh, but that would be a whole other video to go over into corporate responsibility. But I would clarify that with regards to my video on Genesis 7. I'm not saying that definitely no kids were drowned in the flood. I'm pointing out that if you're going to criticize an omnipotent God for not coming up with a better way and then not giving him a, a, a possibility on a better way that could have happened, you're just looking for whatever you can to attack the Bible. All right. We probably have time for a couple more questions here before we wrap things up. Mason G says, what do you think about William Clegg and Craig's view that Genesis 1 through 11 are mytho-history? It sucks. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Everything William Lane Craig does sucks, honestly. Yeah. I, I disagree with him on a lot of things. I will be fair. I disagree with a lot of the way he interprets Genesis 2, Genesis 1. I'm okay with the mytho-history idea. I prefer Gordon Wenham's phrase. It's proto-history. Uh, so it's basically this – it's a proto-history account written in very poetic fashion, written in a mythological theme to sort of detail actual history. Uh, so 
that's something I would probably need to spend a lot of time unpacking. I just don't have time to do it here, but I prefer the term proto history. Uh, question really challenging question from Epic Christ here says, why do you take man's word over God's? You're a worldly man. Also, we need Kent Hovind as president. <laughs> because I'm just, you know, <laughs> Kent Hovind is. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see Kent Hovind as president. I mean, you think, you think it's a comedy show now. You just wait. I, you, you should watch some of the stuff he has. He's a crazy conspiracy theorist. He thinks 9-11 was an inside job. He also thinks, this is my favorite Ken Hovind conspiracy theory. Look it up. Ken Hovind thinks the name Yahweh is a name for Satan. Mm. Yeah. And every time I tell people that, I just I wait to watch their facial reactions because it's just like, <laughs> you get something like, what? Or people are like disgusted. But yeah, he is. he thinks that because Gail Ripplinger told him so. Look it up. Go on YouTube, type in Ken Hovind, Yahweh, Satan. You'll find a video, and he says that. He, he says, oh, Gil Ripplinger thinks there might be a name for Satan. So, uh, who takes this guy seriously, honestly? I don't know. I never knew that. I'm kind of scared. Uh, but what I would love to see is Kent Hovind, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden on a debate stage. That would be That would be pay-per-view TV. This election, I have to say... I didn't think the writers were going to be able to top the election of 2016, but this season <laughs> coming out is amazing. Oh, man. The twists and turns of this election. They threw Kanye West in the middle. I'll tell you. <laughs> I, I just can't wait for the final the final episodes in the season finale. This is going to be amazing. Kanye versus Ken Hovind in the prelims, and then get, get Trump and Biden up there afterwards. Yeah. Michael, it's been a lot of fun, dude. I appreciate the time. Great stuff. I encourage everyone to check out Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube if you haven't already, um, which, I mean, if you're here but you haven't seen Inspiring Philosophy, I don't know what to say. Uh, go check out IP. Uh, if you enjoyed hearing Apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all that fun stuff. Um, that's it. And if you enjoyed it, support us on Patreon. Uh, that's it. IP, Michael, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Have a good one. God bless, everyone.